And I love that we also come together this morning to worship God, not only in praise, but in the study of His Word. And for those of you that have been coming, we've been going through the book, or the gospel, I should say, of John. But we've only been in the prologue, in the very beginning of it. And so far, it has been so, so rich and so, so deep. And this morning, by God's grace, and if He wills, we're going to complete the actual prologue of this gospel. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 together this morning because that is the prologue in its entirety, but we'll be focusing on verses 14 through 18 this morning. As we look at one of the greatest events in all of history, and quite frankly, I will tell you this, if, during the last couple of weeks in John, if your mind hasn't blown already, I will tell you what we're looking at this morning is quite frankly above our thinking pay grade. It's just beyond us. It is unreal, absolutely mind-blowing. But the reality is we tend to skip right over it. We tend to just read and just keep going. And I would encourage you as you read your Bible, slow down. Meditate upon God's truth. Think about it. What is going on here? What is being recorded? What has happened? This morning we're going to slow way down and we're going to stare intently and how God revealed His glory by becoming a man. That's amazing. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, we're going to open up to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, when you flip there, if you could please stand for the honoring of the public reading of God's written word. John chapter 1, we are reading a little bit longer of a passage. We are doing the entire prologue in the public reading. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. It begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which is, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, here's what we're looking at this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and holy written word. Please be seated. That's the prologue. That's the introduction to this great 
gospel that's been recorded to us. And as we read through it, wow, how rich and how deep. And how much we need the Spirit of God to illuminate this truth to us. So let's go to Him and ask Him for His help in a word of prayer. Father, as we have just read this glorious news, that God, You would reach out of heaven and come and take on human flesh. God, a demonstration of love, a demonstration of compassion. Father, we pray this morning that Your Holy Spirit would teach us, would illuminate Your truth, that it would reveal You to us that we might know you more fully, that we might just grasp the reality of the incarnation of Christ, the implications of it. Father, we ask for your help now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of the message is The Glory of God Revealed. Some of you go, wait, Pastor, that sounds a lot like our sermon series through the book of John. This is actually the exact portion of the gospel that we get the overlying theme of God's or revealing God's glory, which is the sermon series title. This morning we're going to be looking at four points as we study verses 14 through 18. If you're taking notes, here they are, four points. First, we're going to look at the mystery of Christ's incarnation. We'll also look at the majesty of Christ's incarnation. And we'll see the message of Christ's incarnation. And lastly, we'll see the magnitude of Christ's incarnation. So let's start with the first point. And I'll talk a little slower for those of you trying to write all that down. Point number one, the mystery of Christ's incarnation. So what needs to happen? We need to take verse 1 of John chapter 1, and we need to couple it with verse 14. And when we do that, perhaps the biggest mystery found between the covers of our Bible appears. Look at it with me. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That connection, that mystery, God taking on human flesh is one of the most profound things in Scripture. Yet for many of us, we read it and skim right over it. We don't think about it. And you know, that's for a lot of things in life, but most things don't really matter. I'll give you an example. How many of you ever took out your cell phone and just went, wow, this thing's amazing? How is it that I type something on here and it goes immediately around the world to the other side and a person receives it like that. Most of us don't stop and even think about that. It's like, oh, send a message or a phone call or seeing them face to face. Look, when I was growing up on the Jetsons, Mr. Stanley showed up on a screen and George Jetson had a talk face to face. Like, wow, that would be really cool. Well, guess what? We're doing it. But most of us never slow down to think about those things. And quite frankly, it doesn't really matter. But when we talk about the incarnation of Christ, it does matter. It matters who He is. And it matters that we fully understand that. Some of you came and joined Pastor Manny on, on Friday night. And we looked at cults and counterfeit gospels. And guess what some of them do with who Jesus is? They only look half of who He is. 
Jehovah's Witness will look at his humanity, but not his deity. Christian Scientology will look at his deity, but not his humanity. And as we'll see today, he's both. And we must consider that he's both. The first thing we see in verse 14 is the word became flesh. This pre-existing word took on flesh. And speaking of the pre-existing word that took on flesh, we see John the Baptist bore witness about the pre-existing word. We see this parenthetical insert in verse 15. We're going to jump ahead real quick. Because we see this insert of a witness of this. In verse 15, we read, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was a he of whom I said, He comes after me. Or excuse me, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now those of you that know the story of John the Baptist and his birth, guess who was born first? John the Baptist was born for Jesus. So what's he speaking of? He was before me. He wasn't speaking of his natural birth. He was speaking of the pre-existent word, the one who always was. He was in the beginning, but he wasn't created in the beginning. He always existed. That's who he gave testimony of. That's who John bore witness. We're going to look in verse 14 and see the mystery of Christ's incarnation, the word becoming flesh. Now, when we speak of flesh in this verse, it isn't simply a reference to the human body, but it's to the entirety of what makes up humanity. Body, mind, emotions, will, the totality of humanity. And when the Word became a human being, he experienced everything the body, the mind, the emotions, and the will go through. Yet we know he did not sin. We read this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Church, we're going to come back to that a little bit later, but there's great hope in that. That our God is somebody who can sympathize with us, who understands us, who came and took on flesh and lived the life. You know somebody who just preaches and doesn't live it? You go, oh, you don't know what it's like to live it. He knows what it's like to live it. He knows what it's like to sweat. He knows what it's like to bleed. He knows what it's like to cry. He knows what it's like to grieve. And he knows what it's like to be tempted. Yet as God, he was without sin. So we use this word incarnation. It is an English word that comes from the Latin. And it's come to mean God incorporated in the flesh. God incorporated in the flesh. It refers to the choices and the acts of the pre-existent Son of God. The acts that were taken in order for Him to become fully human. We've got to explain this clearly. Because when we say we took on flesh, Christ took on flesh, He became fully and truly human. But He became fully and truly human without ceasing from being fully and truly divine. Did you hear that? When He took on flesh, He became fully and truly human, yet He never ceased from being fully and truly divine. So He was 100% God, but He was also 100% man. For those of you that do math, yeah, that's about 200%. 200%. This is known as the hypostatic union. Those of you who like big theological terms, the hypostatic union. 
Here's what the hypostatic union is. It refers to the union of the divine and human natures in Christ. It refers to the union of the divine and human natures in Christ. Jesus being fully man and at the same time being fully God. I like the way that James Montgomery Boyce explained it. He put it this way. James Montgomery Boyce said, we must not make the mistake of thinking of Jesus as being merely a divine man, or, on the other hand, of being merely a human God. Jesus is the God-man. And this means that he is fully and uniquely God, as well as being perfectly man. He is God with us, God for us, and God in us. As man, he is the one who has experienced all the trials, joys, sufferings, losses, gains, and temptations of this life. Now, if we sit here and we sit on that for a second, literally, it's that little emoji with the head going, okay? It's mind-blowing. I spent a lot of time studying this, and still I'm like, what? This is absolutely crazy. We see this mystery of Christ's incarnation played out in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, speaking of Christ, in verse 6, it says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross being treated like a criminal even though he had never sinned god in the pre-existent son of god came to earth to take on flesh and there's so much that we'll unpack in that fact god took on humanity the infinite became finite eternity entered into time the invisible became visible. The creator entered his creation. And all the while, he did not cease from being God. He did not become God and man, nor was he God in man. He was the God-man. One person with two natures. Fully God, fully human. How would you like to get up in front of a class and explain that? beyond us. How has this happened? How can he be fully God and fully human? That's why it's called a mystery. God has done this. Like I said, it's, it's above our thinking pay grade. It's mind-blowing. It would be described as the most amazing event in all of history. That the pre-existent, omnipotent, omnipresent, holy, righteous, and sovereign Son of God took on human nature and lived among mankind both as God and as man at the same time in one distinct person. Figure that one out for me. It's amazing. Paul wrote to Timothy just how great this mystery is. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he said, Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness that he being Christ was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, 
proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Even after being raised from the grave and taken up in the glory, Jesus remains the God-man. Forever God, but forever man. Well, that is an amen because what that means. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, There is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. That we can now get to the Father because of Christ. He is the mediator. He put on humanity without giving up any of his deity. He'll forever remain the God-man to whom we must go through to be reconciled to the Father. And that's why Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, the latter half, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. It was God's demonstration of love to send Jesus to clothe him in flesh, to come and live amongst us, to experience everything that we've experienced, trials and sorrows and woes and cares, yet to live sinlessly so that not only he could die, but also that he would live for us. And we'll unpack that and explain that shortly. Let's move on to point number two, the majesty of Christ's incarnation. The majesty. Right after we read in verse 14 that the word became flesh, we read that he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Look again at verse 14, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, and the word in flesh dwelt among us. It's great when you look at this word dwelt, and you look it up in the Greek. It actually means to pitch a tent. I want you to think about that. How does that make sense? How many of you know your Old Testament fairly well? When the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness... Start and ring a bell at all, what happened? They traveled through the wilderness and they had to pitch a tent. We see in Exodus chapter 33, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. The preexistent word took on flesh and dwelt, pitched a tent among us the place of meeting, to come and meet God here in human flesh. We see again in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That tabernacle was merely a tent. It was a temporary convenience, something that was suited to move from place to place during the journeying of the children of Israel. But the tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. It was there in the midst of the camp of Israel that God's presence dwelled. God's Shekinah glory was among the people. So it was a place where people met God. And that's why it was called the tent of meeting. When Jesus Christ took on human flesh, he dwelt or pitched his tent among mankind for 33 years. The place of meeting God. That for once they could see God face to face. Because at one time he couldn't be seen that way. 
rather than the Shekinah glory coming from the tabernacle, the fullness of God's glory was revealed through Jesus Christ. God's grace, God's truth shines through Jesus. Think about Jesus. He walked and he talked amongst the people. He lived his life before them. He taught, he demonstrated grace. He demonstrated the truth of God with every word and every action. And that's why John writes in the latter half of verse 14 that we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. That signifies his supreme excellencies, his personal perfections. This word glory, it's the manifestation of God's presence and power. Glory, God's glory. The manifestation of his presence and his power. Take a second, just slow down. I know it's heavy, but think about that. God would come down to earth and reveal himself to man. He would take on flesh and he would reveal his glory to everyone. He would physically walk the earth. People got to witness the living God clothed in human flesh. They saw his glory full of grace and truth. He truly, Jesus, became Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus. See, well, that's a great story. Well, no, it's not a story. There were many eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses even to God the Father confirming Christ's majestic glory. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Stop there. We didn't come with you with what? Cleverly devised myths. Let's just make up a story. Let's just repeat this. No, we were actually there. We actually witnessed it. Not only do we witness, but check this out. Verse 17 says, For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves, we heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We've already talked about those who are eyewitnesses and give a testimony of something like this. What happens to them? If you are an eyewitness to the incarnation that God came to earth and was clothed in flesh, going to change you and for us as we study these truths of scripture it should not only be simply amazing but it should change us people got to behold the majesty of god in the god man jesus christ so, so what does that mean now, this is like real heady it's like academic what does that mean well there's a message of the incarnation so point number three the message of christ's incarnation Look with me at John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We read, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, from, for from his fullness we've received grace upon grace. 
say, what does that mean? I will tell you this. It is glorious news that we receive grace upon grace. It means Christ's grace never runs out. It means he has an abundance of grace that's overflowing. And guess what we're needy recipients of? God's grace. And guess how often we need his grace? Time upon time upon time. And his grace is upon grace. But some still are confused about grace. What is grace? It's God's undeserved favor. You see, instead of getting the judgment we deserve for our sins, Christ gives us grace. He gives us a gift. Imagine that. Those of you that are parents, when your child disobeys and doesn't do what they're supposed to do, and instead of grounding them or, or, or spanking them, you go and buy them ice cream. What? Now some of the youth in here are going, that's right, ice cream next. Dad, Mom, I want grace. You got to look like Christ. I want grace. But you didn't deserve ice cream. You deserve to be spanked. You deserve to be grounded. You deserve discipline for your disobedience. But instead, you got something you didn't deserve. That is what we get through Jesus Christ, and it's better than ice cream. Although ice cream is pretty good. This is much, much better. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we read, speaking of Christ, that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches, the abundance of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Stop there for a second and think about that. Many of you were here when we studied through the book of Ephesians. This is where we started with. That God would pour upon us his grace. Lavish it without measure being poured upon us because none of us are deserving of forgiveness. None of us are deserving of salvation. But instead of bringing the wrath of God that is rightly due to us, God would send the pre-existent Son of God to come to earth and take on human flesh as a demonstration of love for us. It's amazing. Then in verse 17, if we keep going, we see John lays out a contrast between the law and between grace. In John chapter 1, verse 17, he says, The law was given through Moses, and grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. There's a contrast here. And I love what A.W. Pink pointed out as some of the points of these contrasts. One of the things between law and grace. Law manifested what was in man which is sin. But grace manifests what's in God, which is love. Stop there. Some of you want to write that down. Law manifested what was in man, which is sin. But grace manifests what is in God, which is love. The next one. Law demanded righteousness from men. The law demanded righteousness from men but grace brings righteousness to men. Huge contrast. And the next one. Law sentences a living man to death. Law sentences a living man to death, whereas grace brings a dead man to life. That's an amazing message. 
That instead of man trying to strive and trying to go through life and hoping and pleading, maybe I can do enough good to be accepted by God. When the reality is, Scripture declares that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That our greatest, finest works that we can muster up are like filthy rags to God. Jesus Christ, the God-man, brings grace. Grace triumphed over the law. And church, that's great news. That instead of all of us standing condemned before the holy law of God, Jesus Christ brings grace and truth. You know, grace and truth are the basics of the gospel. You know, the gospel that saves sinners, by the way, of whom we all are. You know, the gospel that forgives sinners, the gospel that not only takes the debt away from a sinner, but also fills their account with Christ's righteousness. You know, the gospel is solely based upon God's grace. Solely based on God's grace. Salvation is by grace alone. It can't be earned or deserved. There's nothing we can do to merit salvation. For we were all born into Adam. Which means we have a sinful nature. Those of you who have been around a little child, and you try to teach them, dad tries to teach that child to say dad. Like showing his mouth, dad. And mom comes over and says, no, mom. And the first word that comes out is no. How did that happen? So dad comes back and says, wait, wait, wait. He goes, dad. Mom comes over and goes, Mom. And the second word that comes out is, Mine. Where did those come from? Those kids learn those words faster than anything else. No, disobedience. Mine, selfishness. They're born into them. And they display them at a very young age. You know, the child who runs out and has ice cream all over their face, hiding it behind the back, going, No, I didn't have any ice cream. You didn't have to teach them to do that. They automatically came out. And we laugh and we giggle, but now we're just bigger versions. We're no different. We're just bigger, and now we know to wipe our face first. And we come out, and it's in our teeth. <laughs> or our beard, or whatever. There's nothing we can do to merit the salvation from God. We need God's grace. We need His grace. And to understand that we need His grace takes humility on our part. To say there's nothing I can do to muster up enough stuff that God's going to accept me. I can't walk enough people across the street, give enough money to, to goodwill or some other cause or do anything else. God is not going to accept me upon that. I have sinned against the Holy God. And I need, and I plead, and I beg, and I need God's grace. And the beauty is, and all that pleading and all that begging, it's been poured out in abundance. It's grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. As we read in Ephesians 1.7, it's redemption through His blood. It's the forgiveness of our trespasses. And it's all based upon His grace. In the next chapter of Ephesians, we read in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that it's for by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
Imagine if we tried to earn our way into heaven. How many good works did you do? You know what I did? Guess how much I've done. We are so selfish, so sinful, all we would do is boast. But instead, we need to be in awe of God. That God, out of his love, would send his pre-existing son down to earth to take on human flesh so that not only he would live, but he would die. And then raise again and live forevermore. We'll unpack, unpack that in a bit. We also read in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, that it's for, by the, for the grace of God that's appeared that brings salvation for all people. Let's say for the works of man appeared. For the good deeds of man appeared. It's God's grace. God's grace appeared in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ brought salvation. You know, not only is the gospel based upon grace, but it's also based entirely upon truth. Jesus, the God-man, full of grace and truth. You know, one of the truths is that there is a futility of man trying to save himself. I don't know if you ever talked to somebody about Jesus Christ, but some people say, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm better than that guy, or I'm better than that gal. And I'm not that bad. Here's the great quote. I'm not that bad of a person. That's futile. Futile thinking. The truth is, Scripture says we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And it says the wages of sin is death. There is no other way. But also the truth is declared that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. You know, it takes humility for someone to actually realize that their sins are actually rebellion against the Holy God. That it's not just that they're doing their own thing and thinking life's okay, but they are rebelling against the Holy God. They are disobedient, defiant against God. And how should God take that? The God who created all things. The God that not only created them, but demonstrated his love by sending his son to die in their place, and yet they shake a hand in it. The Bible says they're storing up God's wrath for themselves. But Christ came to take that full penalty and to place it upon himself that God's wrath would be satisfied. But not only, many of us think of, well, he died, but he also rose. He conquered sin and death. And he rose, the scriptures say, for our justification. Our justification means Christ came and lived a perfect life. Christ fulfilled the law of God. And when he rose, he transferred that righteousness to us. So not only are we forgiven, the debt is cleared, but we're also given his righteousness, so instead we have an increase, an increase we can never get to on our own. We have the riches of Christ. The same Jesus who conquered sin and death. He gives this free gift to all who repent and believe in him, that they would receive eternal life that they would no longer be in bondage to sin. You know, that's an amazing truth. Many people think, oh, I could do as I please. I could drink, I could party, I could do all these things, and I'll stop when I want to stop. Well, the reality is, apart from Christ, Scripture says you're in bondage to sin. How many times when you're apart from Christ that you came and said, I need to stop doing this. And I'm going to stop, well, not now, because that's too convenient. I'm going to stop tomorrow. And then tomorrow came, and guess what? You know what? I'm going to start tomorrow. 
And the reality is you had no power over sin. You were in bondage to sin. But when Jesus rose from the grave, he broke that. That we could be free to live a life that's pleasing to him. No longer in bondage to sin. That we could be given a new heart with new desires. That we could be filled with God's very spirit to empower us and to direct us in a way that pleases him. You know, this gospel is called the word of truth. We see this multiple times in Scripture. The gospel being the word of truth. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In Him being Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Church, this is an amazing truth. Because of the incarnation of Christ, the pre-existent word taken on flesh, dying on our behalf, raising on our behalf, also living on our behalf, but now we can believe in him. We've seen his glory. And when believing, he gives us a helper. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, don't fear, don't worry that I'm going away. I'll send you a helper. Well, he was right there. They're like, hey, man, you're with us. I doubt they said, hey, man, because that would not be. He said, Lord, you are with us. Don't leave. He said, don't worry. When I go, I'll send you another helper. But guess what? When Jesus was on earth, he was in one place at one at a, at a time. But when he sent his helpers, helper could be with us all, everywhere we go, at all times. We also read in James chapter 1, verse 18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures, children of God, that he would bring us forth through his word, his word of truth. So here's the deal. The message of Christ's incarnation is that God came to earth to save sinners. God reached down from heaven, came and took on flesh to save sinners. To what extent does love go? You know, I often think, and think, man, it's a good thing I'm not God. You ever been frustrated with somebody, disappointed with somebody? Yeah, exactly. It's like, bink. <laughs> or like, I dream a genie. I don't have any hair. Be like, wiggle the hair, bink, bink, or your nose or something, and they're gone. But God being love would love us even in our disobedience, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. Crazy. That's the message of the incarnation of Christ. But that's coupled with point number four, the magnitude. The magnitude of Christ's incarnation. In verse 18, the last verse of the prologue to the Gospel of John, we read that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus has made Him known. So here's the reality. No one has ever seen God. But Jesus, the only God as we read, which means the unique God, has made him known. You go, man, I don't know what that means. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. Let's unpack it. Let's go back to Exodus. Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and he pleads with God. He wants to see God. And he pleads with God, and he says this in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. He says, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God responds and says, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. You go, wait a minute, God has a face? 
He's not speaking of a face like your face and my face. He's speaking about the fullness of him that you cannot look upon the fullness of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, it says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6, 16, take notes. Which means he's completely pure. He's completely holy. And as such, sinful man cannot look upon him and live. Well, that's a problem. If we need God, if we need God to be saved, and yet we cannot look upon him, there's a problem. This is where the incarnation of Christ comes in. That Christ came, took on flesh, so that man could behold God's glory. That man could look upon him. Scripture declares that Christ is the image of the invisible God. We read that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ, the exact image. Scripture also declares that Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. Again, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning of verse 3 says, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Logos, the pre-existing word, the word of His power. The exact imprint of His nature. You know, we often refer to Jesus, rightly we refer to Him as the second person of the Trinity. That does not, church, mean that He's partially God. It means he is fully God. He is fully God. We see this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, speaking of Christ, that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God, who's existed forever, also the pre-existent Son who was in the beginning, wasn't created, he's always been there, takes on human flesh, and people get to see the fullness of God. A God full of grace and truth. So here lies the magnitude of the incarnation. God came to earth to reveal himself. Point number one, he came to reveal himself. But that's not all. He also came to save us. To save us from our sins. That God, through his son, Jesus Christ, came and bare testimony of the truth. God being a God of grace and truth would come to earth to save us. I love the way John Calvin put this. He said this. He said, God comes down to earth that he may raise us up to heaven. That's great. God comes down to earth. Jesus humbles himself and takes on humanity. Think about that for a second. You know, most of us wouldn't take on the role of a pauper or a, or a poor person, a beggar for a day. He did way far greater than that. Going from the God who was and is and always has been and taking on this stuff? To go through all that we go through? And then the big culminating piece of it wasn't that he would like everybody come and serve him. It was like, I will die for you. I will suffer on your behalf. That was the culmination of his life. Come and live perfectly and to die in our place. But here, like Calvin said, God comes down to earth that he may raise us up to heaven. Man can never reach God no matter what type of religious structure he puts in place. 
Man will never reach God. And therefore, God came to man. Came not only to reveal himself to us, but to live and to die on our behalf. Some of you are familiar with the Old Testament practice of sacrifices. But sacrifices, animal sacrifices, could not take away sins. They could cover them, but not take them away. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So while remaining God, Jesus became a man so that he could die on our behalf, paying our debt for sin. I don't know if you would pump the brakes a little bit and just think about that, but it's, it's crazy. The living God would take on flesh for the purpose of dying to demonstrate his love. Crazy. Jesus, when he goes to the cross, is our substitute. When he gives himself on the cross, he took upon himself all of our sins. He satisfied God's wrath because he was a perfect sacrifice, sinless in every way. But you know, Jesus didn't only come to die for us. He also took on flesh to live for us. You see, yes, he was the perfect lamb of God, and he was slaughtered for our sins. But being fully God, he also lived a perfectly sinless life. And in so doing, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law on our behalf. He lived in perfect righteousness. And when he rose from the dead again, that was transferred to us. That all who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins also receive his righteousness as though they have lived a perfect and holy and righteous life. Now, I'm looking at it all, you guys, and I don't know your life, but I know this. Scripture declares that none of us have lived that way on our own. Oh, we could try to fake it till we make it, but it ain't going to work. We could even put on smiles and look real good on Sunday morning as we come together, but the reality is we have all sinned against us. But Christ came not only to die, but to live on our behalf. We read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, God made his son, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. Some of us can reflect on our life before Jesus and look back and Man, shame. It's like, man, I cannot believe I've done the things I've done. Well, do you realize if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that is not the way God looks upon you? That he no longer sees those things, but he sees Jesus Christ, the righteousness of the pre-existing word. That's when he looks at you. That's a freeing truth. He no longer sees me, the scum of the world, but he sees Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing. The God-man Jesus Christ not only died for you, but he also lived perfectly for you while on earth. And now he still lives to make intercession for you. He stands at the right hand of the Father. He is mine. She is mine. He is mine. She is mine. As there is an accuser that comes and says, can you believe it? Look what they're doing. Look what they said. Jesus Christ stands there and intercedes for you. He is forever the God-man. Forever. 
You know, after hearing this morning the mystery, the majesty, the message, and the magnitude of Christ's incarnation, you can't sit idly. You must respond. If you are a believer this morning in Jesus Christ, you rejoice that He's fully God and He's fully human. You rejoice that He lived for you, died for you, and continues to live for you as a mediator between you and God the Father. You also rejoice in this fact, that while He lived here on earth, He lived in the flesh. So He's been tempted in every way. He has to deal with emotions. He has to deal with everything we go through, which means He understands. Which means we can go boldly before His throne of grace in a time of need and receive grace that we don't have to be ashamed of saying, God, right now I'm weak and I need your help. He understands. And He pours out grace upon grace that we can go to Him at all times that He understands. But perhaps there are some of us here this morning that we know the gospel, we know the reality of what Christ has done. However, we have never responded to it. We've continued with a head knowledge of, well, I can answer the questions correctly. Someone gave me a test about Jesus. I can get the questions right. But just answering those correctly will not get you into heaven. He must be Lord. And He must be Savior. And today would be the time for you to turn to Him. Today would be the time to turn and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. To turn from living your ways and turn to Christ. To stop trusting and hoping that maybe God will accept me. And know definitely that today Christ is my Lord and Savior. And that he will sustain me. It's a big difference. That if someone was to ask you, are you certain that if you died today that you'd go to heaven? That it wouldn't be a flippant, well I hope so. Or I'm pretty sure. But my hope is in Jesus Christ alone. That Jesus, who died on my behalf, paid the penalty for my sin, rose again, gave me his righteousness, that he is my entry into heaven. This Jesus who took on human flesh. But you must receive him. You must respond to him. You must submit to him. He must be Lord and Savior. It's not head knowledge. It's your life. I plead with you. Turn to Christ now. Trust him completely. Let's pray. God, your word is so amazing, so many layers and so much depth. And yet your spirit is so real to come and illuminate truth to us. To your children to illuminate and reveal your truth and to those who are lost and blind, that your spirit would come and bring life, breathe life into them, that for the first time they would understand and they would see your glory. They would realize the need that they have of grace. That this morning, each of us who have responded to that grace would rejoice that God, you demonstrated love by sending your pre-existent Son to take on flesh, to die and live in our place and to live forevermore as the God-man who intercedes for us. God, for us this morning, this is stirring and it's, it's starting to make sense in our minds. And although we've maybe had answers before and we can answer a, a test question, we know that we're not living in a manner that is in obedience to you. We know we're not living in a manner that would bring you glory. God, I pray this morning your spirit would draw that man or woman, young man or young woman, unto yourself. 
no matter who in here, that your spirit would bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For truly you are a God of love who has demonstrated amazing love. Father, may this day be a day of repentance. May it be a day of salvation. May it be a day of assurance and hope for your great namesake. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.